From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, and I am sitting in for Tony today. We are so glad that you are with us. As a reminder, you can always find this program at TonyPerkins.com. If you miss the show, you can always catch it later, TonyPerkins.com. Also encourage you to download the Stand Firm app on the Google on the Play Store, or at the iTunes Store, wherever you get your apps. Today on the program, we're going to discuss a State Department report on international religious freedom, why it matters to you and everyone. We'll talk to Travis Weber about that. We're also going to talk to a worship leader who has been leading the Let Us Worship movement around the country in response to government lockdowns on church, what kind of reaction has he been getting from both the public as well as governments? We'll talk about that a little later in the program. We'll finish today talking about how to think biblically about cancel culture. We all have heard of it. What does it mean? Should we be canceling people or not? We're going to talk about that at the end of the program. But to start, the news of the day and really the news of the week, the Colonial Pipeline, which transports about 45% of fuel consumed on the East Coast, initiated a restart of pipeline operations on Wednesday evening after a six-day shutdown caused by ransomware hacks. But it will take several days for things to return to normal, with some analysts saying it could even take weeks for gasoline, diesel, and jet fuel to flow through some places and refill nearly empty storage units, given the 5,500-mile pipeline that flows just five miles per hour. Earlier that day, on Wednesday, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg told reporters the administration was working around the clock to tackle delays caused by the shutdown of Colonial Pipeline's operations. Here's what he had to say. What could have been done or what should be done to prevent something like this from happening? Well, uh, this is part of what we have in mind when we talk about resilience. Uh, we need to make sure our infrastructure is resilient to climate security issues caused by the increased frequency and severity of weather events. But we also need to be sure uh, that we are resilient in the face of cyber threats uh, and uh, certainly in, in the kinds of things that the American Jobs Plan will be funding and supporting. With me now to talk about the Biden administration's response to the gas crisis and vulnerability of America's energy infrastructure is U.S. Congressman August Fluger, who represents the 11th Congressional District of Texas. Representative Fluger is also a member of the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Homeland Security Committee. Congressman, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Well, we are glad to have you. What's your quick reaction uh, to Secretary Buttigieg's comments there about the uh, the moment that we're in? Well, you know, look, I mean, he's right. Resiliency is key. We do need to have resiliency. But I think the other side of the coin right here is that uh, this administration has done everything they possibly can to attack, assault, and cancel the oil and gas industry, which, as you pointed out, this particular pipeline is providing 45% of the fuel needed on the East Coast. So, yes, we do need resiliency, uh, but, but let's look at the bigger picture and not, uh, not miss the fact that the administration doesn't value the energy security and what uh, oil, natural gas, uh, and, and other forms of affordable, reliable energy do for our country, our way of life, and our security. 
we know that when he was campaigning, he made remarks that that uh, concerned many in the oil industry. And I know your district is heavily represented or you heavily represent the oil industry and what happens there in Texas. Um, do we think there is a connection between the somewhat flippant remarks he made about the oil industry and what we're experiencing now? Well, I mean, if, if we're talking about the Colonial Pipeline specifically, I think we do need to have a discussion and sitting on the Homeland Security uh, Committee. This is, you know, squarely uh, in, in the jurisdiction of that committee and, and, and of the administration to make sure that we protect our infrastructure, critical infrastructure. You know, I spent 20 years in the military as a fighter pilot. We look at critical infrastructure, both from an offensive and as a defensive side to protect. And so that's really important uh, for us as a country to look at what keeps us running. We went through this in February in Texas with the winter storms, and we do need resiliency. We need reliability. The renewables are great, and it's going to take all of the energy we can muster in the next two decades as our population continues to grow. But you have to have reliability, and that's what oil and natural gas do, which my district, including the Permian Basin, provides for this country and the world. Now, we know that on Wednesday, President Biden also signed an executive order on cybersecurity in response to this crisis. What's your thoughts on that executive order? Is it enough? Is it adequate? What did you think about that? Well, let's also, uh, you know, kind of look at the details here. This executive order has been in the works since solar winds. And we had some hearings on solar winds, the cyber attack that we saw uh, at the end of last year and have now started to investigate. And so, Um, It's a step in the right direction, but it doesn't go far enough. And it really just kind of limits its own jurisdiction to government contractors and um, entities that are that are actually working in the government for information sharing, intelligence sharing. Um, But we have got to to understand as a country what our policy is going to be in the attribution of attacks, whether they're criminal attacks or even domestic terrorism. Uh, holding people accountable is going to be so important. And that's what we've been disappointed in this administration is their lack of accountability for actors, state actors like China and Russia and other criminal organizations. At this point, do we have any reason to believe that this is anything other than hackers who are looking for money? Yeah, I think that's the important thing for us to really investigate and to see what happened, uh, what are the details What are the facts? Uh, We need a full investigation on this and to make sure that we can do everything possible uh, to help our our private industry, whether it's the oil and gas industry, the pipelines like Colonial uh, or other critical industries to help our private partners uh, protect against this. You sit on the Homeland Security Committee. What conversations are taking place in Congress? Uh, What advice would you give to the Biden administration about what they can do to make sure that things like this don't happen in the future? Well, again, I think step one is let's have the investigation to understand who the actors are, what their goals are, uh, and and whether or not there's any state support uh, from countries uh, around the world. And then step two is, you know, with the Homeland Security Committee and other uh, agencies out there, we do need to do a better job of sharing intelligence, of making sure that those private partners uh, are equipped, that they learn best practices of how to prepare and prevent. You know, in my district, we actually had a company that was hacked into, um, and and they had employed a a cyber defense. uh, They had a cyber defense contract with, with the private company, and we're able to fight it and mitigate it and, and prevent something bad from happening. 
Um, and I think that's the kind of thing that this administration can do. Um, and we in Congress, obviously, on the Homeland Security Committee can lead the way and will lead the way. People have expressed some concern because of the shortage and the, the hoarding that we have seen on the East Coast of gasoline, that this will have an impact on gas prices into the future, even once this the pipeline issue is taken care of. Do you think that's a real concern? Well, sure. I think as demand continues to go up, coming out of a pandemic, supply right now obviously interrupted um, in, the, in the transmission from the Colonial Pipeline. Um, you know, we'll, we'll certainly see a short-term effect and, and potentially even a long-term effect. But, you know, I think even more important um, is this should be a wake-up call uh, for America, for our citizens, for 330 million people who enjoy the best quality of life that the, the world has ever known. Um, and, you know, this is uh, the interruption that we've seen to daily life. Folks that are right here in D.C., those that are in Georgia and the Carolinas and, and all the way up into Virginia, they have felt the effects of this. Right now, there are people who cannot get gasoline. And so, um, yes, the price will continue to go up, but we as a country need to look at this is important and and call on the administration to not do the same thing through policy that a criminal organization was able to do for the short amount of time that they've done it uh, in, in this example. And to that to that point, it, it's common to say in the political space that you shouldn't let a good crisis go to waste. And this, of course, is a crisis kind of in, in the same way that in Texas we saw in the winter when the cold weather uh took down the infrastructure there for the, the power plants there and people were without weather for or were without power for a long time. Is there any concern that this moment will be used by the federal government to assert more control over private companies that have a critical role in our transportation infrastructure and our, our energy infrastructure. Is that a concern or do you even think that might be appropriate? Listen, I'm worried about federal overreach every single day. So, yes, I think that there is a chance that that could happen. Um, and obviously, with an example like this and what we're going through in this crisis, we want to make sure uh, that, that we do the right thing. So investigating the facts, getting everything out on the table, having a transparent uh, you know, approach to the way that we react is super important. Yeah. Now, this is a cyber attack of an energy industry deliverer. But are there other industries, in, in your conversations with Homeland Security, are there other industries that could likewise be impacted that should be um, should be taking note of what's happening here and making sure they, that they are not vulnerable in the way that Colonial clearly was in this case? Well, I think so. And the pandemic taught us anything you know, we, we're looking at supply chain issues right now all across the country, whether it's building supplies or whether it's uh, raw materials. And obviously now with the, the Colonial Pipeline, the example that you mentioned, um, but but even, you know, financial uh, institutions in that industry. I mean, we as a society have a very integrated uh, and advanced economy, you know, very complex system. And so an interruption to one part has an effect on the rest of it. And we do need to look at that. Uh, and again, back to what I said previously, mitigate that by having a strong defense, a good partnership uh, between the government and, and the private industry. But let's let the private industry, uh, you know, do what they do best, which is innovate um, and unleash their, uh, you know, you know their, uh, their own thoughts and, and the ways that they would mitigate this and provide them a stable platform to do that from. 
Now, you have introduced uh, some legislation, the Saving America's Energy Future Act, which would prohibit the Biden administration from declaring a moratorium on issuing new oil and gas permits for drilling on federal lands. Now, that predates, of course, this episode. But tell me why you did that and how you think that could be helpful to this situation. Well, it, it kind of goes back to the thought that, you know, this activity, this crime that has happened against Colonial um, is an outside actor. But we don't want the federal government to introduce market inefficiencies that also hurt the supply chain. And that's exactly what would happen um, if they place a moratorium like they have. Uh, and if that continues uh, to hold out on drilling or leasing or permitting um, to get those products to where they need to go to continue our economic progress. And so, you know, that, that was our thought process was uh, we, we want to continue uh, to do everything we can to provide the energy needs at an affordable uh, and reliable cost to the American public. I mean, I just I have to continue to say this, that energy security is national security. Um, and when you look at emissions, which is what they uh, always point to, we have done more over the last decade to lower harmful emissions than the Paris Climate Accords could ever do. Uh, and so we're not buying that argument. We know that private industry has done their part to lower those emissions and will continue to do so. And we hope you get a good response from that. Congressman August Fluger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your efforts in Congress and serving our country. Uh, God bless you and yours. Appreciate you joining us today. Thank you and God bless. And coming up. After the break, the State Department this week released its annual report on international religious freedom. What are the key findings of that report? Why does it matter? We're going to talk about that with Travis Weber from FRC right after the break. Stay with us. What is Roe versus Wade and what did it do? The Supreme Court's 1973 decision ruled that abortion is protected under the U.S. Constitution, striking down many state abortion restrictions and severely limiting the extent to which states could write their own abortion laws. The Supreme Court's limitations on states to legislate abortion restrictions depends on the trimester of a pregnancy. For instance, Roe disallows states from restricting abortions in the first trimester, but allows some restrictions on abortions in the third trimester. What Roe doesn't do is require states to have any restrictions. Abortion through all nine months of pregnancy is the default, unless Congress or the individual states pass laws restricting it. That leaves a lot of room for unrestricted abortions. For a full explanation of how Roe v. Wade liberalized abortion laws, go to frc.org slash explainer. That's frc.org slash explainer. After the recent wave of media censorship, are you struggling to find a conservative, relevant, and Christian platform where you can find out what's really going on? Here at Family Research Council, we believe that Americans have a right to exercise their freedom of speech and share their stories with the world. If you're ready to hear the facts that the left doesn't want you to know about, then head over to frcblog.com to check out our latest blog posts. We cover a wide range of issues you and your family care about, all written by our policy, government affairs, and biblical worldview experts. We discuss topics that other media platforms won't, like changes in pro-life policy, current events that affect Christians internationally, sexuality from a biblical perspective, and insights into the bigger picture of the shift in American culture. To stay up to date on current news related to faith, family, and freedom, visit frcblog.com. 
That's frcblog.com. Would you like to spend more time in God's Word? Then join Family Research Council on an exciting journey through the Bible with their Stand on the Word Bible Reading Plan. FRC's two-year Bible reading plan helps you to approach daily Bible reading with an intentional focus of diving deeper into the nature of God and how His Word speaks into cultural issues. By studying the Bible, we can see the grandeur of God unfold throughout the past. This reading plan takes you through the Bible as events happen in history. Laying out the scripture every day in an engaging manner, it is key to helping us stay grounded in God's truth. All wisdom comes from God, and He has given us the Bible as a way to understand the world. Start reading today with Family Research Council. When you sign up, we text you every Sunday with daily passages and questions that help prepare you for conversations with your friends and family. To begin this journey, visit frc.org Bible. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. On Wednesday, the U.S. State Department released its annual report on international religious freedom that details the status of religious freedom in nearly 200 foreign countries and territories. The report covers government policies that violate religious belief and practices of groups, religious denominations, and individuals. It also covers U.S. policies to promote religious freedom around the world. The U.S. State Department submits the reports in accordance with the International Religious Freedom Act of 1998. So this year's report is the 23rd report. With me now to talk about it is Travis Weber, FRC's Vice President for Policy and Government Affairs. Travis, welcome to the program. Thank you. So tell us um, why this report matters to us. Yeah, so the report matters because it highlights specifically the the issue of international religious freedom. It matters that in the plethora of issues our foreign policy deals with and the State Department handles internationally, it matters that this issue rises to the top and is prioritized in our foreign policy. So the State Department releasing this annually is basically saying, look, we are tracking religious freedom around the world. We care about it. We're taking note of what problems are occurring and what uh, positive trends are developing. And theoretically, uh, they should be acting on these these problems um, and and positive trends. And uh, so that's why, you know, in context, this is important as, a, as an annual measure. Um, it's good to see them release it. There obviously needs to be more work, but it, it's a it's a good thing that the United States has go here in terms of religious freedom and foreign policy. Do we have a history of acting on the report and, and taking steps to improve conditions around the world? So the answer is it depends. Uh, you know, different administrations have been better than others. The um, uh, Trump administration, for instance, um, in terms of international religious freedom actions, for instance, when Turkey was holding Pastor Andrew Brunson, they reacted by sanctioning high-level Turkish officials under Executive Order 13818, under the authority of the Global Bandiksky Act, which says uh, they can be sanctioned for human rights violations. Now, this was not directly in response to this report, but it's an example of an action, the type of which we should be taking based on this report. So they should be saying, look, let's have, look how China did this year, how Nigeria do. They're both not doing great. There's a lot of problems in both those countries. Um, Sanctions are one tool, among others, that the United States government has at its disposal to deal with these issues, sanctioning officials in those countries, in addition to calling them out, pressing them on it diplomatically, asking them about it. Uh, these are things that need to follow up this report. 
Now, the report that was released on Wednesday, what were some of the highlights? What are the things that we should be acting on? Yeah, so I mentioned China and Nigeria already. It was good to see uh, in the the descriptions of those countries mention of a lot of the issues that we have been tracking over the past months and years in China, for instance, the uh, religious freedom violations targeting the the Uyghur Muslim community, Tibetan Buddhists, Falun Gong, Christian house churches, other Christians in China as well. I mean, frankly, even the recognized patriotic church in China, uh, which is the one approved by the government, has issues in terms of not a full free practice of its religious faith. So, uh, China across the board, a lot of issues detailed we've seen over the past months and years. We we uh, glad to see detailed in this report. They need to be acted on, though. Um, Nigeria, attacks by Fulani herdsmen at, on, on Christian communities, in addition to the, the problems that we see from Boko Haram and others uh, targeting Christians in the north. Uh, there's a big uh, Muslim-Christian divide in terms of a fault line in the conflict in that country. And... Um, Uh, That's something the government needs to address, though. Mm -hmm. They need to get a handle on it and make sure that religious freedom is protected. And right now, Christians are being targeted in that country as well as elsewhere in Africa. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've been detailing Mozambique, uh, Burkina Faso, other African countries as well. But um, those are two countries that we, you know, we, we think there needs to be action taken. You mentioned the fact that different administrations respond differently to this subject and and take varying degrees of seriousness. Secretary Blinken had some things to say about how he views religious freedom, and I want to listen to that and then give you a chance to respond. Religious freedom is co-equal with other human rights because human rights are indivisible. Religious freedom is not more or less important than the freedom to speak and assemble, to participate in the political life of one's country, to live free from torture or slavery, or any other human right. Indeed, they're all interdependent. What do you think of this idea that religious freedom is co-equal with other human rights? Yeah, it's just wrong. What he said has a lot of problems. Primarily, we just disagree. That's not true. The reality is religious freedom is foundational to and, and fundamental to the development of many other Rights. Now, human rights, you know, it's a term, it's kind of a separate discussion here, but let's, let's go in it since he's using the term human rights and referencing that. I mean, human rights uh, is a term that um, has a long and noble history in, in um, the civilizations, uh, <laughs> Western civilization, but, you know, just history of the world, human rights has a, has a, has a, a place mm-hmm. culminating most significantly in the development of um, uh, the, the, the documents which came out of the United Nations post-Holocaust after World War II. It's not a term that you can just throw any policy mm-hmm. into and say, oh, you know, let's just stick it in there and call it a human right. So this is dangerous. We start kind of saying everything's a human right. It's all independent. No, religious freedom is a fundamental, has a fundamental place uh, that's foundational and integral to that whole structure. And it comes crashing down once you start saying, well, it doesn't matter and it could equal to other human rights. So that's problematic. And there's a lot of bad policy that comes out of that type of thinking. Do you think that this is an attempt to minimize the significance of religious freedom broadly? Because we know that the left has has been fond of saying that, well, religious freedom is really just a license to discriminate. So is this there uh, just an, another way of saying we don't think it's as important as you do? I do think it's a deliberate attempt to deprioritize it. This is very deliberate, changing the policy of what the Trump administration had done under Secretary Pompeo here. You know, I mean, I, I don't know if he actually believes that. It seems sort of planned in his remarks there as he's kind of stating, you know, his, his, his comments about religious freedom there. But 
the point is that that's still wrong, what he's saying. And um, uh, it's it's very dangerous and very problematic when that is starting implemented. Yeah. I do think there are concerns that, that you that's paving the way to just marginalize religious freedom. And, and when he says he says that religious freedom is co-equal with other human rights and, and the way the left talks about rights these days, everything is a human right, essentially housing and, and money and food and employment. Everything is a human right. What's the risk of basically saying religious freedom is just like all of those other things? We kind of hope you have. Well, the risk is if it's eventually marginalized and cast off to the side. And as you say, everything could be jammed in once you go down this line of thinking. So it's important for us to take note of it and say, well, no, push back. Religious freedom is important and a, and a, and a priority when we talk about human rights, and some are more foundational and fundamental than others. Travis Weber, thank you so much for your time for joining us. Thank you. Stay with us. Sean Foyt has been leading the Let Us Worship movement around the country in protest of government lockdowns. We're going to talk to him about this movement and how people are responding, what he's accomplishing right after the break. Stay with us. Where do you get your news? Do you have confidence you're getting the full truth? If you want to stay up to date on conservative news and are looking for Christian resources to help you stay politically engaged, then download Family Research Council's Stand Firm app. With all of our content available at your fingertips, you will conveniently be able to stay up to date throughout your busy day. The Stand Firm app will give you access to a variety of resources, such as our most recent radio programs, social media posts, and publications. Additionally, you will have the opportunity to take action and make your voice heard by contacting your elected officials on the issues that most concern you. Visit the App Store on your smartphone or mobile device and search Stand Firm to download Family Research Council's official Stand Firm app. Stay informed with a trusted source. Again, search Stand Firm to download the Stand Firm app. As the political and cultural landscape of our nation has shifted in a concerning direction, it is so important for Christians to be equipped with biblical answers for the difficult questions of our time. That is why Family Research Council created our Biblical Worldview series. With the political left changing definitions to favor their narrative and to push their agenda, at times it can be hard to decipher what is true. That is why we must hold to the truth of the Bible, which stands the test of time. It holds the truth that does not change. Become equipped to stand firm in the face of cultural and political storms with FRC's Biblical Worldview series. This series dives deep into what the Bible says about some of the most crucial issues of our day. You'll learn what the Bible teaches on abortion, same-sex marriage, the separation of church and state, religious freedom, and the age-old question, should Christians be involved in politics? To access this series, visit frc.org worldview. That's frc.org worldview. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you are with us. For the past year, worship leader Sean Foyt has led the Let Us Worship movement in cities all across the nation, protesting the government's discriminatory lockdowns against the church by bringing people back together to worship. Today, hundreds of thousands of worshipers have joined Let Us Worship movement across more than 50 cities. And with me now to talk about the movement is the man behind it, Sean Foyt. Sean, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Um, I'm having a hard time hearing. 
Can I? Thank you. Can you hear me now? There he is. We've got him. Awesome. Okay, awesome, Sean. Good to be on here. Good to be on here with you guys. We are so glad to have you. Now, tell us how this started and what what it was that led you to start this movement around the country. Well, um, you know, I've spent a last, the last 20 years uh, really uh, investing and worshiping with the persecuted church around the world. Um, I've been in, uh, you know, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, North Korea, several nations. It's a big part of our heart is to take worship into the darkest places and didn't re- really never, never imagined in my lifetime that that, you know, 2020 would happen and that we would be faced with what we were in our own nation. And so, uh, you know, in California, our governor said, uh, you know, you can no longer sing in church. We had the most restrictive state in America and a lot of churches were complying. And I just felt like, you know, I had all this history of what I've learned with the persecuted church that it was time to rise up. And so we had a spontaneous gathering on July 9th. Um, on the Golden Gate Bridge within 24 hours notice and 400 people showed up and the presence of God showed up and courage was there and we began to unite as the church. And then the next day we were in Huntington Beach and a thousand people showed up on the beach. And here we are 87 cities later and a move of God has been taking place across America. Well, we are so thankful for your courage and your leadership and the way you have responded to this because you know taking the light into the darkness is exactly what i think the the church needs to do and and so many of us have been um conflicted about the right way to respond to this but let me just tell you your response has been encouraging to so many and i know you know that but i want you to hear it again but tell us what kind of response have you been getting uh, not only at the events but from the church broadly has it been Totally supportive, largely supportive, a mix. What are you getting from the church? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a mix. You know, I think that, uh, you know, we there's been a lot of resistance in different, different, you know, places, not only from Antifa or BLM activists or Satanists. We've had all that, but we've had a lot of resistance from the church, um, uh, which is just wild to me. Um, now, as states have started to reopen and really – um, you know, we've shifted not even just uh, standing for, you know, the First Amendment or religious liberties, which we've always done. Now we're seeing God show up with revival. We're seeing people with suicide like last night in uh, in North Georgia, a guy that was going to commit blow his brains out on the parking lot close to where we were, gave his life to Jesus, got delivered, got baptized, got set free and got plugged into lo- lo- with local church leaders. And that kind of thing's happening every city we go to. So. Yes, we're taking a stand for our First Amendment, you know, and religious liberties rights, but we're also seeing the Lord respond to our courage with miracles, with signs and wonders, with salvation, with healing. And, you know, that the church seeing that every day from our feed and from our news, it's really quieted a lot of people, although there still are some people angry that, you know, how dare you gather outside (laughs) and worship in the open air. Uh, without masks, which is just mind-boggling. But uh, but God's moving in spite of it all, and the, I think the reaction has been mixed, um, especially in the beginning. Now now I feel like we have a lot more support as it's you know things have started to open up. Are you having any difficulty with local governments as you do this? Oh yeah, I mean we've I'm, I have a court order to show up in in Arizona 
uh, later this month. You know, we've been we've had uh, mayors in New Orleans and Nashville and other places do contact tracing on people that attended. Uh, we have been lambasted by the liberal press, by the media, by governors. I mean, there's a whole set of laws that Gavin Newsom in California released, and the senators call them the Sean Foyt laws. You know, those are the ones that he the some of the most restrictive gatherings that they felt like were aimed at targeting our movement. Um, and so, yeah, we've we've run into a lot, a lot of persecution, and a lot. You know, we've we've butted heads with a lot of those mayors and and, and tyrannical government leaders. Now, have you seen any evidence that you're causing a problem and making people sick? You know, in 87 cities, we don't have one single, uh, you know, case that's been, you know, linked back to our gatherings. Um, you know, the follow, you know, the follow the science people should know that, though. You know, when you're outside and you can spread out and, and I mean, it's really really hard to catch a virus you know in that in that dynamic um but you know it's they're not really following the science we've seen that now sean i understand that you've got an event coming up in baton rouge shortly is that right can you tell people about it yeah baton rouge we're so excited we have secured the most incredible venue in the state of louisiana this the state capital steps we'll be gathering together there next uh, Sunday night, I believe, and it is going to be a powerful time. You do not want to miss it. Sean Foy, Let Us Worship Movement. We are so thankful for you, uh, for all you're doing, and thank you again for joining us today on the program. Awesome. Thank you, guys. We'll see you there. Coming up after the break, we are going to continue this conversation a little bit about whether Sean Foyt is responding biblically to this situation when we talk about responding biblically to cancel culture. We'll talk with David Clausen coming up right after the break. Stay with us. Get a trusted perspective on the news of the day every day. Listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins to get honest and in-depth commentary on what's going on in our nation's capital and around the world. Join Family Research Council President Tony Perkins live every weekday by tuning into Washington Watch on the American Family Radio Network, Bot Radio, the KTLW Radio Network, and independent Christian radio stations across the country. Or listen to the show when it works for you by visiting TonyPerkins.com. Since the Supreme Court decided Roe v. Wade in 1973, over 60 million people are now missing from our country due to legalized abortion. Public opinion, our knowledge of law, and scientific advancements demonstrate that Roe should by no means be considered settled law. Roe is an abomination in our country's history, and it's time for the horrendous practice of legalized abortion to end. To learn more about the legal, historical, and cultural reasons to overturn Roe v. Wade, go to frc.org Roe. The Equality Act sounds like good legislation and something that ought to have bipartisan support, but it doesn't. Why? Because the Equality Act, paradoxically, would spur inequality. It is Trojan horse legislation that would hinder equality and would massively overhaul our federal civil rights framework. The stated purpose of the bill is to prohibit discrimination on the basis of sex, gender identity, and sexual orientation. The real effect of this bill would not be to eliminate discrimination, but to erase the freedom to hold a different opinion. The Equality Act would mandate government-imposed inequality by requiring acceptance of a particular ideology about sexual ethics, while leaving no room for legitimate public debate. Simply put, the Equality Act mandates an anti-life, 
anti-family, and anti-faith agenda throughout federal law and would be a disaster for all Americans. To learn more about the inequality of the Equality Act, visit frc.org slash Equality Act. Since June of 2015, over 12,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria. This violence has reached a point at which experts are warning of a progressive genocide specifically targeting Christians across Africa's largest and most economically powerful nation. Yet this violence often goes unreported in the media, and if reported, is seriously downplayed. To learn more about what is actually taking place in Nigeria, along with other countries where Christians face persecution, visit frc.org Nigeria. Did you know that Planned Parenthood is the biggest abortion supplier in the U.S.? According to Planned Parenthood's most recent annual report, it committed 354,871 abortions in fiscal year 2019, up by over 9,000 abortions since 2018. According to these numbers, Planned Parenthood aborted 972 babies every single day. To learn more about what Planned Parenthood is really doing, visit frc.org slash Planned Parenthood facts. Welcome back to Washington Watch. Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Thrilled that you have decided to join us. Earlier this week, the American Bible Society released the first two chapters of their 11th annual State of the Bible report which highlights cultural trends in the U.S. regarding spirituality and scripture engagement. The report had some very encouraging news and findings, including that 95 million Americans are now, quote, test driving the Bible, looking for hope and wisdom. And for the fourth straight year, there have been declines in the overall number of Bible disengaged individuals. This, of course, is all great news and will hopefully result in an increase in the percentage of Americans who have a biblical worldview, which is what we're here to talk about now. Every Wednesday on the FRC blog, we have a blog series to help Christians think biblically about current issues. This week's topic is cancel culture. How should Christians think about it? How does it conflict with scripture or does it? To close out the week, we are going to have our weekly conversation with David Clausen, the director of Christian Ethics and Biblical Worldview at Family Research Council. David, welcome back to the program. Hey, great to be back on with you, Joseph. So, cancel culture, we've talked a lot about, we hear this word all the time, this phrase, I guess, now all the time. Um, start off, why don't we try to define what this is? When you say cancel culture, or when somebody else says that, what do you think of? Yeah, because it's a phrase that's used all over the place, and I think it is also a phrase that has evolved over time. But I think today when the the phrase cancel culture is used, it really refers to kind of a coordinated effort uh, to sideline, uh, shame, uh, i.e., cancel someone or an organization uh, for views that are seen as outside the mainstream, or at least that a sizable vocal minority uh, sees that are uh, no longer socially accepted or outdated or oppressive, and therefore they want to uh, go after someone who holds those views. And it's interesting, I think, Joseph, uh, some people who maybe want to cancel someone, and maybe it's out of a desire to hold them accountable. And if that's all it was, that's that's a good thing to hold our leaders accountable. But really, it's a, a form of figurative capital punishment now uh, that they want to not just, uh, if you hold a view that they disagree with, to just sideline you completely and to just completely discredit and shame you to where you can never show up in the public sphere again. 
Is this actually a new phenomenon? Because I, you know, I don't think human nature changes all that much over time. Um, but this seems like, at least the way we talk about it, we talk about it like it's a new thing. Is it really new? I think the impulse of cancel culture, you know, we live in a fallen world, a Genesis 3 world. I think the impulse where we disagree someone and we want we disagree with someone, we want to write them off. I don't I think that impulse is a fairly old impulse, but it does seem uh, that we've, you know, our, our society is increasingly less biblically literate. Um, it's increasingly more hostile to Christian views uh, that I think that the so-called cancel culture is getting worse. And we could talk about examples uh, just this week with uh, Promise Keepers, the, the men's ministry uh, that's going to have an event down in Dallas. Uh, the, the, the CEO said something about how he stood for biblical marriage and sexuality and he, oh, criticism all over the place saying that, you know, for the Dallas Cowboys need to disinvite him. AT&T mm-hmm. Stadium shouldn't allow him. So I think to answer your question directly, I think that the impulse of cancel culture is part of human nature. But I do think it's getting increasingly worse and increasingly hostile yeah. For those of us who have views that are kind of coming out of the Christian worldview. Well, when I think when I do a quick review of the book of Acts, I can think of many stories in there in which, you know, Peter and Paul got canceled in a first century kind of way, right? Is it possible, one hypothesis I'm working through here, is that the reason why we think it's worse is because of social media. And because we now have a much more efficient way to rally a mob when in the first century and frankly up until about 20 years ago, you actually kind of had to be there in person. But now you can rally people and make people angry across the globe who had no connection. They don't even know the people involved. They never been to the state or the country where this is happening. But you can get them really angry about it anyway. Do you think social media has made this possible? No, I do. So I think that that what we're now calling cancel culture, and that phrase has been really only kind of in common parlance for maybe the last five or six years, I think it really is a largely a social media phenomenon. Uh, I think of the Black Lives Matter protest or uh, things with Antifa or, or these, these protests. They, they generally originate as a social media hashtag on, on Twitter right. or Instagram. And so I do think it has really, the, the impulse maybe has always been there, but I do think social media has made it a lot worse and it's given it a big megaphone. Yeah, I, I think that's fair. Um, what is the impulse um, and I don't know if anybody ever says, I want to go cancel this person. I don't know that they ever like use that language when describing their own motivations, but they certainly want to um, you know, punish somebody who does something they don't like. What, do, what is the impulse behind this? Okay, we're no longer going to let you be in a movie. Um, nobody's ever going to buy your record again. Nobody's ever going to go to your store, or we're going to go down to your bakery, and we're going to make sure nobody ever goes in there again. What are they trying to accomplish? I think what we're, we're, we've largely seen, Joseph, with uh, kind of the examples maybe you're just even referring to, is this real anger and vitriol towards uh, really orthodox Christian beliefs, um, specifically on marriage and sexuality. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know there's uh, calls to cancel people who have views on uh, whether women should serve in combat or, or, or things like that. But almost all the stories that I see uh, have largely revolved around marriage and sexuality, and I, I think that uh, increasingly now that with you know we're six or seven years post Obergefell, Obergefell, uh, we're increasingly seeing as less and less Americans have what we would call a biblical worldview mm-hmm. uh, that uh, the LGBT revolution has kind of become mainstreamed. If anyone dares dissent from this new moral orthodoxy. That's where the, the, the impulse to, to cancel and to go after uh, and to sideline and demonize. I really think that's where a lot of that energy has come is on those issues. Now, 
earlier in the conversation, you mentioned the word accountability. And we would agree, I think, that accountability is a good thing. Where do you draw that line? Because I think most people that we would perhaps describe as part of this mob, you're trying to cancel somebody, you're trying to ruin their life, they would respond by saying, no, actually, we're just trying to hold them accountable. They, of course, have the freedom to do what they want to do, and we have the freedom to respond how we want to respond. What's what's the line between simply holding somebody accountable publicly, which in many cases can be appropriate depending on who you're talking about, and just being, you know, vindictive, vengeful cancel culture? Yeah, that's a good question. I think that we're trying to draw a line here because I, I thought you think about the boycott movements. You know, there have been social conservative organizations and churches who have boycotted Starbucks or Target or Disney uh, for taking stances that they thought were detrimental to the family or, or told a false uh, vision about marriage. Uh, and I think that that's fine. And so I think people who disagree with us politically or socially or culturally can voice their opposition when they disagree with us. I think you cross the line where cancel culture crosses the line is with character assassination. It's not just that your ideas are bad and outdated, but that you are somehow inherently a defiled, uh, degenerate person because you hold these views. And I think you, you read social media. I know you're, you're on social media. You, you see some of the comments. And again, it's not just a disagreement about ideas or policy. It's that you are somehow an irredeemable person uh, who has bad ideas and because so you're a bad person. I think that's part of at least where the line is. In addition to that, and I, th- I think this is complicated, understanding the difference between those things. Um, but I'm inclined to think that part of the difference is that accountability, when you hold somebody accountable, there's a greater good mm-hmm. involved. It's like the reason why I don't let my kids do whatever they want and why, I, why there's discipline and why parents do that in why they provide accountability and why we would even do this for friends is because there's there's something that, that there's a greater there's a standard we're trying to uphold which is good for my family which is good for our community whatever those things are and and in a way when you hold somebody accountable you're doing it for their good yeah. right you're doing it because no that is unacceptable and if you do that consistently you're going to cause a lot of problems for yourself and other people so actually out of concern for you I can't not address that right that to me is accountability. What I see in cancel culture is you've done something I don't like. Now I'm going to try to ruin your life. Yeah. I'm not trying to restore you. I'm not trying to help you. I'm not trying to like, I, I'm not trying to make sure that things go well for you in the future. I'm trying to do the opposite because I'm really angry at you for whatever you've done. And I'm going to see if I can destroy you. Is that a difference? Is that a fair difference between accountability and cancel culture? No, I think you're hitting it right on the head, Joseph. And again, it goes back to, because you know, not everyone's going to agree with us on our view, our interpretation right. of scripture, our beliefs about marriage or, or the dignity of yeah. human life or issues related to LGBT uh, rights. But again, I think you cross that line when it's not just a conversation that's happening, uh, trying to sharpen one another's thinking. I I know I'm not perfect. I'm an infallible person. I'm all for a conversation about ideas and policies. But what I'm increasingly seeing, and it is troubling, is that it's, you know, you are a bad person. Your ideas make you someone who's irredeemable. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where, as Christians, with our worldview that, that realizes, hey, only actually God is the ultimate judge. And we have these categories of forgiveness. We have these categories of redemption. Yeah. And, and no one, no matter how bad their ideas are, is inherently irredeemable. Right. And I think that's where, as Christians, we can speak a, a more hopeful word uh, than anyone kind of that's leading the yeah. cancel culture movement. 
Is cancel culture a left-wing thing or a right-wing thing? I think the impulse of cancel culture can be a, a human thing. I think all of us can fall into that where, you know, we, we get so <clears throat> amped up about whatever we're debating. But it, I think most of the examples we are seeing, though, is coming from the political and cultural left. Let me, at the risk of pushing back on that, and I don't even know how I think about this, but this question comes to mind. Did Liz Cheney get canceled? That's a fair question, and it's been in the news. I think uh, you could say she she was canceled. She she was driven from her leadership position, and so I, that's why I kind of tried to nuance my answer a little well, bit. Well, that no, it, I, it happens on both sides, you know, on the issues. Yeah. It seems to originate from the cultural political left. But I think it, what we saw this week, uh, even in yeah. the, the GOP caucus, um, yeah, that impulse is there <laughs> for all of us. And that's because I yeah. think it, that, that impulse to, to lash out at someone we disagree with, that's a human condition. What I will say is when I think of cancel culture, kind of the the origins of, of it for me are somebody like Baron L. Stutzman, who's the florist in Washington State, right, who the attorney general there and, and a bunch of private actors went after, um, and, and Jack Phillips. And – People who are just kind of – and there was a – I'm forgetting the name. There was a pizza parlor in – I think it was in Indiana back during the Riffra debate there mm-hmm. where they went out and in his the, – the daughter of this pizza parlor owner had said, I don't think we would serve pizzas for a gay wedding. And so they – they protested. They shut the place down. Dude lost his small business because of some things. His daughter said, you know, in an unsophisticated way, probably just not understanding the media, to the, to the media. And so he lost his pizza business, right? Those to me are, are um, kind of stereotypical cancel culture moments. And what I don't see, though I, I think it's true that the left and the right both can kind of be vengeful. That's a human problem. I don't see similar efforts from the right necessarily. Hey, there's a business owner that has a different political position than I do. Let's go see if we can ruin their economic lives. I, it might exist. I just haven't seen that. No, and that's why I think when I answered the question a second ago, I do yeah. think that kind of on the cultural and political left is that real antagonism. Um, right. The opening of this show or segment, Joseph, you mentioned that the the Bible report that just came mm-hmm. out. It's you know a good thing that people are reading the Bible and engaging with the Bible more, but. Nevertheless, the fact remains that only 6% of Americans have a, a biblical worldview. More, more of those are on the political right than the political left. And so even that engagement with the Bible, that understanding the biblical concepts, might even have something to do with the, the contrast we've seen even between right. those on the left and the right. Right. Now, you mentioned this, the, this concept of forgiveness before. And, of course, we're trying to think biblically about cancel culture. How does forgiveness play into this is that the solution to cancel culture? I think it's a major component um, because, you know, I think when you, you read some of these op-eds, you read the social media post, it's that because I disagree with you, uh, the views you hold are not just outdated and, you know, old-fashioned, that they're just subversive, they're evil, therefore mm-hmm. you're an evil person. Therefore, people are just writing each other off. Right. Whereas Christians, we realize that no one is ever too far gone from God's love. And, and as those who follow him, we're called to love one another. And so that's right. why I think Christians, we have these categories of love, of forgiveness, of grace, of mercy. Uh, Ultimately, we have the message of the gospel, Mm -hmm. that you and I, even though we're sinful, can be reconciled to God. Therefore, we should be reconciled. We should seek to be reconciled with other people. And so I think think the the Christian message of the gospel does give us categories that hopefully can move us past this uh, impulse to write each other off. Right. 
the another another way I'm thinking about this question: church discipline happens. Church yeah. discipline is biblical. Is church discipline cancel culture, or is it something else? I would say church discipline is something else. Uh, it's, I guess, similar themes, but 1 Corinthians 11, you know, when a church exercises church discipline, it's saying that we can no longer affirm that this member is actually a, a believer. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, Scripture says that we do this actually for that person's good, mm-hmm. uh, that we have their best intentions. We, the, 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 the impulse, the desire yeah. is to see them to repent of their sin and then to be yeah. welcomed back into the congregation. So yeah. I think that, that good intention, wanting some someone's best yeah. is maybe what distinguishes church discipline a little bit from just the, the mainstream cancel culture we've been talking about. So let's get really practical here in our last minute. We're scrolling through Facebook. We're th- scrolling through Twitter, whatever social media, and we see somebody who says something or does something that bothers us. What's the Christian way to respond to that? What's the biblical way? I respond? think the biblical way, uh, something I've tried to practice, Joseph, is I'll just pray for that person right there on the spot before I keep scrolling. Just just pray for that person. Usually I don't know that person. I don't know what's going on in their life. So pray for them. And if we do decide to engage, just remember that's someone made in God's image uh, that deserves respect and dignity. And we are not actually biblically obligated to take up an offense on behalf of somebody else, are we? No. And I think that right there might be the solution to this whole thing, right? It's like, well, things happen. People do things that we don't like, and and, and that's okay, isn't it? David Klossman, thank you again so much for your time. Every week, join us on the program. Thank you, Joseph. And for the rest of you, we are so glad that you have joined us today. We look forward to seeing you next time here on Washington Watch. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.